Good morning, you may be seated. My name is Steve. Hey. Hey, it's good to see you guys too. Uh, it's just, okay, now, um, anyway, as I was saying, my name is Steve and uh, I'm here to open the word of God for you and, um, and see what the good Lord will do. Today, we're uh, in Acts chapter nine. So if you will turn with me or direct your attention to the flickering pixels to both of my sides, we will read from Acts chapter nine, starting in verse one through verse 19. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went up to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come, from, come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me to you so that you may gain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, over the last year or so, if you've been with us, we have been reading through the whole Bible together as a congregation. And so what we do on Sunday morning is we pause and we take one of those passages that we read together and we do some work on it and see what the Lord has for us. And that means today we are in the Acts of the Apostles and we're beginning a very short series, three-week series, um, in not just the Acts of the Apostles, but basically laying out the foundations of what it means to be a Christian. Today, 
We're going to be talking about uh, how God calls people into his family. Next week, we're going to talk about justification. Week after, sanctification. If those words mean nothing to you, don't worry. I I will explain it up to you very nicely. Um, But for this week, how does God call people into his family? In other words, how does somebody actually become a Christian? And for this, we're going to consider the conversion of a man named Saul, later to be known as Paul. But in this story, his name is still Saul. And what we're going to see here is so very important because today there's an awful lot of confusion, both within the church and, with, and outside the church, over what it means, like how we are to become Christians and what that process means. Like, do you just have to mentally assent to a group of doctrines in order to become a Christian? I mean, after all, like, if you want to become a Marxist, that's basically what it is. You see the teachings, you say, I buy in, and you're, you're in. Is that what it takes to be a Christian? Are there behavioral requirements? Do you have to, like, give a certain amount of money to the church? Do you have to come to church a certain number of times? Or, like, do you need to, like, get with somebody else and, you know, pray the sinner's prayer? If you don't know what that means, it's because you probably didn't grow up in the church in the 90s, but some of you do. Spoiler alert, the answer is no to all of these. And if you get nothing else out of this sermon, get this. Salvation in Christ is by grace. It is a gift that cannot be bought with good ethics, nor almsgiving, nor prayer, nor anything else. And that means that you can invite Jesus into your heart all day long, and if it is not attended with the effectual call of God into his family, then you're no closer to being a Christian than when you began. So how do we become Christians? Well, that's what we're going to see in the story of Saul's conversion. What we see here is a a fierce persecutor of the church who then is transformed into a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the very thing he tried to destroy. It's amazing. And we're not going to get much into uh, the interaction that he had with Ananias, although that's marvelous. We're going to really stick with the the story as it uh, relates to Paul and Jesus. So how does that transformation occur? Let's look at it. First two verses, verses one and two. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, which was what the church was called, the the way of Christ was called in the early days, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So By Saul's, later Paul's own reckoning, by the way, if I say Paul, Saul, it's the same person. I just use them interchangeably sometimes. Um, But by his own reckoning, Saul was a zealous Jew whose zeal exceeded that of almost anybody else in Jerusalem at that time. He was like deeply concerned that the traditions of his fathers not be diluted, not be violated. And here comes this new sect of Judaism called the Way, and 
the founder of this uh, sect, like claimed to be God, claimed to fulfill all the Old Testament in and of himself, like accepted worship, like this was untenable to Saul. It was a deep offense. And so in his zeal, Saul sought to eradicate this movement from Israel and the face of the planet. And we see a couple of chapters earlier how he went about doing that in chapter 7 of Acts, um, how he stood over the dead body of the first martyr of the church, Stephen, and he did so with approval. So he's not messing around. And now we see this in chapter 9, this murderous impulse inside of Saul leading him out of Jerusalem and into other cities to arrest and persecute Christians, in this case, to Damascus. And look, Saul was an equal opportunity hater, equal opportunity murderer. He, he wanted to go and get, he had, you know, authority in his letters to go bind men and women, okay? So he's, he's bringing everybody in. It didn't matter who they were. And among the early church, there was never a greater enemy than Saul of Tarsus. And so, lesson number one, the first thing that we learn, even before we get to his interaction with the risen Jesus, the first thing we learn about the call of God is that a person's deeds are irrelevant. A person's past is irrelevant to the call of Jesus Christ. I can't tell you how many people I've talked to in my life who believe that because of the wreckage that they have left in their past, that they have made themselves somehow ineligible for the grace of Christ's call. And if, and if this passage does nothing else, it should cast those fears to the wind because we're dealing with Saul of Tarsus here, the persecutor of the church murderer of Christians. So no one, and you've got to hear this, no one is beyond the kindness of the Lord. Not Saul, certainly not you. Because watch what happens next, starting in verse 3. Now, as he went on his way, this is Saul, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, that, that repetition there, it, it indicates emotion. Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise into the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. So Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now, the risen Jesus stops Saul, knocks him to the ground, and then he speaks. And I want you to notice here, this is what I want you to notice. Who is in control of this interaction? It's certainly not Saul. He would, I mean, he was in full control prior to this moment, right? His impulses, like he wanted to go to Damascus to carry out his mission. He made provisions. He made all the plans. 
He got people to go with him. He secured the letters. He was very much in control of his life. He was walking down this road, and Jesus shows up and knocks him to the ground and breaks into his life with unbearable light. Saul is on the, on the ground, unable to bear the weight of Christ's glory. He's blind. He's unable to rise. And it is Jesus who is in control of this moment. Yes? So Jesus stopped Saul. Jesus blinded Saul with his glory. Jesus tells Saul what he is to do next. And that is perhaps, in my opinion, the most important thing that we can take from this story and there's lots of things we can learn from this story, but this, I'm just focusing on this one. We are not in control of our own salvation. Saul was not a seeker of Jesus. He was not somebody, like he, he didn't have something deep in his heart desiring to meet Jesus and submit his life to Christ's authority. Jesus confronts him in his sin and calls Saul to himself. It is God who chose Saul for salvation, not Saul who chose himself. Let me say it again because this is very important. God chose Saul for salvation. Saul did not choose himself. That is abundantly clear in this story. And that's the second thing we learn from this passage. We too, stay with me. I, I, I know what I'm saying. Stay with me. We too are chosen for salvation. We do not choose ourselves. And I think this is the most crucial thing we need to understand about God's saving call because even though, like, I know that offends our sensibilities. Like, I, I get that. But if you understand why this is the case, it's one of the sweetest of doctrines. Now, I know what I said needs some defending. Um, even though even though at least in, the, in Paul's case, in Saul's case, it's pretty clear, right, that he was not seeking Jesus. Jesus sought him. Jesus interrupted, broke into his life. At least in that instance, it's pretty clear Jesus chose Saul. Saul did not choose Jesus. But it's pretty clear, even though it's clear in the passage, I'm making a more universal declaration here, and thus it needs defending. And I can also imagine somebody objecting at this point saying, yeah, you committed one of the classic blunders, the most famous of which is never get involved in a land war in Asia. The second, and only slightly less well-known is, you can't build a doctrine on a narrative passage. <laughs> you, 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 the second is that you can't build a doctrine on a narrative passage because it is descriptive. It tells you what, what happened at one point. It doesn't necessarily tell you what happens for all times, in all places, for all people, and you would be correct. So, so I, I, anyway, let's continue. Um, so the fact that Jesus chose Saul without any decision on Saul's part doesn't mean that's the way that he does it in all cases, like for all of us sitting here, correct? That's absolutely right. So let's leave this descriptive passage for a moment. Let's just let's put Saul's story right here. We'll come back to it. And then we'll go to a prescriptive passage. Okay, we're, we're going to leave the descriptive one here. We're going to go to a prescriptive passage with regards to salvation and how God accomplishes it. 
And for this, we're going to go to Paul's own writings in Romans chapter 9. And listen, I know that by saying God chooses us, we do not choose ourselves, I'm saying something that's not easily digestible to a lot of people. We like to think that we have a choice in this matter. We like to think that there is something good in us that God will see and award with salvation and later, if all goes well, eternal bliss. But that is not the teaching of the Bible. I need to be very plain about that. That is not the teaching of the Bible. Let's look at it. So Paul in Romans chapter 9 begins with an Old Testament story. Romans chapter 9 verse 10. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. I can feel the hole I'm digging myself here. Let's just, just stay with me, okay? Just, just please. Okay, now, pay attention because it's really important. Rebecca has twins in her womb. And before they were even born, God has declared, Jacob I have loved. Esau I have hated. Now, that's awful. I know, it sounds terrible. But you have to realize that we're dealing with covenant language here. Love and hate, we, we associate them with emotions. Like love, you know, we feel warm inside. Hate, we feel bitterness, rage, anger. Like that's not what these words mean here. We're talking about covenant language. Covenant love means you belong to me. You're a member of the covenant. Covenant hate means you do not belong to me. You are outside the covenant. So you might think about it like in terms of marriage, like I myself am a member of that kind of covenant. And so in covenant language, that means I love my wife and hate every other woman. Somebody's gonna take that out of context and make, get me in trouble. I'm not saying, but th this is covenant language, not emotional language, right? I, I love my wife hate every other woman, which means I belong to her and she belongs to me and we belong covenantally to no one else. That's what it means. Does that, does that make sense? Like, okay, good. I know it's hard to separate the words love and hate from their emotional counterparts, but if we're going to understand this passage, we've got to do that. We've got to. So before these twins were even born, God chose one for his family and excluded another from his family. And I know what that sounds like. I know it's hard to accept, but just suspend your judgment for a moment and hear the whole teaching. Now, why would God do such an exclusionary thing? Well, the justification is plain for us in verse 11, which we just read. Here's why. In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, that's the key. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. 
So according to this, salvation, the call of God to be a covenant member of his family is all grace. It is all gift. There is no mixture of merit in it. Not even a hint, not even a trace. He chose Jacob in the womb, not because he was better than Esau. Like, in fact, if you've read Jacob's story, it's arguable that he was ethically worse than Esau. He chose Jacob before he was born to demonstrate, listen, to demonstrate that salvation comes by grace, not by works. Jacob did precisely nothing to earn his place in God's family, and that's why the doctrine of election is so precious, because nothing else quite puts God's grace and magnanimity on display than that. Okay. Now, I know I haven't eliminated all the difficulty of this passage yet, so let's keep going. Verse 14. What shall we say then? Like in light of all this, you chose one, did not choose another, in the womb, before they could do anything, what shall we say? Is there injustice on God's part? And that's the question, isn't it? Doesn't that sound unjust? Choosing one, not choosing the other, that feels like, you, mm, that's not right. Give them a chance to prove themselves before you go, bestowing salvation on one and not another. So, is there injustice on God's part? Paul answers emphatically, by no means. There is no stronger way, this was written in Greek originally, there is no stronger way to say in the Greek language, no, absolutely not. By no means. There is no possibility of God being unjust. And if that sounds, listen, if that sounds unjust to you, as it does to all of us on some level, Paul says, you've got to change the way you think because God will not suffer an accusation against his justice, his perfect justice. Okay, Paul, fine. Then prove that God is not unjust for choosing some and excluding others. Can we do that? Okay, verse 15. Here's Paul's justification. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, listen to this, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. The hole's getting deeper. God. Now, Paul grounds this doctrine in God's own words to Moses. Like he decides, God himself decides upon whom he will show mercy and upon whom he will not. Why? Why? So that salvation depends on God, not human will or exertion. 
It is God who has mercy, not human beings who earn his compassion. So Paul here broadens what God says to Moses and applies it to every human being whom God calls and saves. He has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Now, we started this little section with the feeling of injustice. How, is God unjust? And Paul is making that tension, he's exacerbating that tension and teasing it out. If you're like me, that does nothing <laughs> to address the feeling of injustice you're experiencing. If anything, it makes it worse. But don't worry, because Paul's about to make all our dreams come true. Verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? That's the question, isn't it? That is the crux of the matter. If salvation depends only on God, if there is truly nothing that we can do to find favor in his sight, if there really is no report card that we can present to him and say, look, like I've done okay for myself, don't I deserve your mercy? If it's true that God has mercy on whomever he wills and hardens whomever he wills, then the question is, why does he still find fault in us? He's doing it. He's the one hardening hearts. How can he hold us accountable for that? That's not fair. That is not just. And if we had the answer to that question, then the whole mystery of salvation would be solved and our feelings of injustice would melt away. Give us that answer, Paul. And he does. He does. You ready for the answer? This is the answer. I mean, when it comes to the doctrine of election, when it comes to the doctrine of salvation, God calling people into his family, this is the answer. When we talk about him choosing some and not others, when we talk about how that feels unjust, how could that happen? You ready for the answer? Who can resist his will? Verse 20, but who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Oh no, that's the answer. That's it. Who are you <laughs> to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. That's the answer. In other words, God does not answer to us. If I find injustice in his ways, the problem is not with him. The problem is with me. 
And that is one of the great differences between our generation and our more ancient forebears. It used to be that human beings assumed that God was the judge and that we were in the dock under his scrutiny. Today, this great reversal has taken place and we have placed ourselves in the position of judge and we have put God in the dock, to use C.S. Lewis's phrase. So many, like, many people find this doctrine offensive because it doesn't fit our sensibilities. It, it obliterates any meritocratic impulses that we have in our lives. But in the kingdom of God, this is plain if you read the scripture, in the kingdom of God, no human being has been given bootstraps by which we are to pull ourselves up. It is God who saves, we do not save ourselves. It is God who decides which belongs to him and which does not before we were ever born. Why? Because all is grace. Now, um, I I confess, I have not always believed this. Um, I mean, I've always believed that salvation was by grace. I think it's hard to be, this is like a central doctrine. But um, in the early days of being a Christian, I found this doctrine that God calls some, not others, and all that, I found that abhorrent. I believed it made God out to be some kind of exclusionary monster. But over time, I actually came to embrace this doctrine as the actual teaching of the Bible. And now I find it almost unbearably sweet. And that change came about because I was reading the scriptures. I considered what salvation by grace actually means. If salvation is by grace, grace that means it is free. And what is true of any gift is that it glorifies the giver and removes all my ground for boasting. And how could an act be any more gracious and free than being chosen before you were even born? And if that's true, there is no point in our lives at which we can boast in our salvation because God has accomplished it before we had a choice so that his mercy might be magnified. And that brings us back to Saul and the road to Damascus. Was there ever a man who sought the saving call of God less than Saul of Tarsus? And yet the risen Jesus showed up on that road and proclaimed You belong to me. Not only that, but in speaking to Ananias later in the story, Jesus says, Saul is my chosen instrument to take my name before the Gentiles. This was not Saul's decision. He did not pray to receive Jesus into his heart. Instead, he was seized by a great affection, and he could not escape. Now, Before I move on, let me just say that if you can accept the initial difficulty of a doctrine like that, it becomes one of the most comforting teachings that I know of. Why? Because if I did nothing, if, if, if the call of God into his family, salvation is by grace, it is all gift, no merit, If I did nothing to earn it, that means I can do nothing to lose it. 
Remember when Jesus said in John's gospel that whoever came to him, he would never cast out. And that for all who were in his hand, no one could snatch them away. After salvation, we will always go through seasons of difficulty. We will always go through seasons of like feeling God's absence. But if I know that I was saved by grace, not by works, then I know that I am safe in Jesus' hand no matter what my circumstances are telling me. Oh, it is so comforting. But it's also comforting to those who want to become Christians for whatever reason, but they just can't for, for, all, for all sorts of different reasons. They can't. I remember having a conversation with a woman, and she was exceedingly distraught. She had been reading the Bible, and she decided that it was true. She'd been praying for God to save her. She had been going to church faithfully. And yet she found that she remained under this like powerful conviction of sin. She couldn't escape it. She said, I don't know what else to do. How shall I be saved? My response had two parts. First, take heart. You can do nothing. (laughs) Salvation is by grace. And that means when God chooses, he will grant you the faith to believe. Because even the faith to believe and the faith to choose is a gift. All is grace. Nothing escapes from that rubric. All is grace. But second, take heart. Because people whom God has hardened are not gripped by such longings to be saved by their, from their sin. That longing is also a gift because all is grace. All is grace. Hear me. All is grace. And let me further tell you the content of that grace. If you still feel like, I I, I don't assume that I've persuaded all of you, but like, or maybe even most of you. um, If you still feel like God is a cruel deity for doing such things, then here's where I'm about to tell you everything that it cost him to ensure that you and I would become chosen members of his family. We discover in Revelation chapter 5 that Jesus shall stand among the congregation of heaven as a lamb that looks as though he was slain. And it further says that Jesus Christ was slain from before the foundation of the world. And this means that God the Father had each member of his family, all of us, like each member of his family in his loving attention before he ever created the world. And that means that their salvation was already planned. And he knew that each of us would be born into the wreckage of a fallen world full of sin, like with a rebellious fist raised against him in our hearts. But if you were to walk to the edge of time, as my friend Daniel Rickett has often said, if you walk to the edge of time and you stretch your ear backwards into eternity past, what you will hear is this. The Christ will suffer. 
Jesus Christ came into this world not to teach us, not to perform miracles, although he did both. Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners, to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. The Father desired that you and I would become covenant children in the kingdom of God, and that required the forgiveness of our sins. But to forgive without payment for crimes is a mockery of justice. So our Lord Jesus clothed himself in the drabby garments of our flesh, climbed up onto the altar of sacrifice, and paid for our forgiveness with his own blood. And on that cross, listen, on that cross, a great covenant reversal occurred. Prior to this moment, God hated covenant language. God hated sin and those in whom sin resided and loved his son. But on the cross, Jesus was forsaken. And that means that in order to love us, in order to bring us under the covenant love, to bring us into his family, the father hated his own son. Think of it. It's astonishing. Hear it again. In order for you and me to be included in God's family, he excluded his own son. Now, of course, Christ would rise three days later and be vindicated back into the family, but that wasn't the reality that Friday afternoon. Any charges of injustice or callousness towards God are instantly vaporized when you see what it cost him to include you. And so now all I'm left to do is plead with everyone who's listening. Maybe you're already a Christian. Then if that's the case, let's praise the God of grace who did more than we could ever imagine to bring us into his family. All is grace. And that means our only obligation with respect to our salvation is to give thanks to the giver. In fact, if you go and read in Paul's later writings and his epistles, thanksgiving is almost synonymous with what he means by the Christian life. Be why? Because all is grace. Okay, now, maybe you're not a Christian. All I can say to you is this. You must believe that Christ died to forgive your sins, even yours. If Christ's blood was potent, was potent enough to forgive Saul of Tarsus, it is potent enough to forgive yours. And maybe you're confused at this point, which I wouldn't blame you. You're thinking, didn't you just spend all this time saying that we, we have no choice in the matter? How is it that you are now pleading with us to make a choice? And that is a good question. The reason I'm pleading with you to make a choice is because I am under orders to do so. My Lord Jesus said that we Christians are to go out into all the world, making disciples, proclaiming the forgiveness of sins in his name. Later in Romans, Paul says that, like this is chapter 10, right after chapter 9 that we just talked about, where he says, everybody's chosen from before the foundation of the world, nothing you can do about it. And then Paul says in Romans chapter 10, how will they believe if they haven't heard? And how will they hear if there's no one to preach to them? 
So yes, go out, preach, persuade, plead with people to come into the kingdom. And all of that taken together means that the call of God into his family is a profound mystery. All I know is God uses fallible preachers like myself as one of his instruments to bring people to faith. And so right at this very moment, like have you been seized by a great affection? Do you know it? Do you know the call of God unto salvation for your sins? Then what that means is that God is granting you salvation by his unfathomable grace. It's not for us to argue like who is chosen and who is not. That's, that, that belongs to God. That does not belong to us. If he has given you grace to believe, then believe and your sins will be forgiven. Even if you don't believe all the stuff about he chooses someone, whatever, just believe that your sins are forgiven by the atoning blood of Jesus Christ and you shall enter the covenant love of God's family, not because you earned it, but because your father is full of grace. Now, we come to the table, as we do each and every week. And it was at this very table 20-plus years ago that Christ seized me with an unfathomable love. I, I had been coming to the church. I didn't grow up in the church. I had been coming to the church for about six months, and I had read the stuff. And I thought by attending, I thought by reading the scriptures that I was good. I was in. And the one night I was at a church service, and it was a church that doesn't do communion like we do every week. It was a church that did it like once a quarter. And so all of a sudden, everybody's getting up and going down. I didn't know what to do. I'd never done this before. They didn't give any instructions. They didn't bar the table. They didn't do anything. So I'm just like watching people like, okay, they do the thing, and then they do that, and they, okay, all right, whatever. So I get up there, and it's my turn. And the guy holding the chalice said to me, Steve, Jesus loves you. That was it. That was it. That was the moment when I realized he, he has forgiven my sins, even mine. He loves me. And this table became for me a converting sacrament. It was astonishing. Martin Luther talks about that, how it can be a converting sacrament. It was for me. These are not magical. It's bread. It's a cup. That's it. But in receiving these elements by faith, Christ confers grace to you, real grace, to support you in this long journey. So let us pray and then we will come and eat together. Our Father in heaven, we have nothing but thanksgiving. We have done nothing to earn your love. We have done nothing to um, earn your favor, and yet you have chosen us for this very thing. What an astonishing gift of grace. I pray you would grant each of us who belongs to your family 
a real sense of thanksgiving as we take these elements. And I pray for anyone who is not a member of your family that you would enable them and grant them the grace to believe so that they may know the everlasting joy that is being in your covenant family. Now we love you and pray this in Jesus' name, amen. My brothers and sisters, come and welcome to Jesus Christ.